at all times and the desert blossoms as a rose, uh, that's going to be a, a wonderful time. You know, if you live in an area that has rain all the time and everything's green, uh, you won't appreciate it, I don't think, when it happens like you who have lived in desert areas and see it bloom as a rose for the first time in living memory. Uh, that's going to be a wonderful event when God brings those prophecies to pass. At any rate, uh, the thunderstorms bring clouds and clouds bring shield from the sun and I think July and August are turning out in this area quite bearable, so uh, it's nice to have the relief even though we do get the, the sunshine a lot. And uh, sunshine is uplifting and not depressing as long as it doesn't get too hot. Anyway, I'm thankful for where we are and what we have the opportunity to share and enjoy. Let's get right into First uh, John again today. As you'll recall, we, in the first couple of chapters, saw some definition of, of God's love and that uh, there is a separation between the kind of love that God has toward His creation and the type of love that humans naturally have of themselves for people that they care for or related to or enjoy in particular, but God's love goes to His entire creation. And we saw that you cannot separate the law of God from the love of God. And when you do away with the law of God, you do away with the love of God. Because the law defines Him and His love. Christ boiled it down very succinctly to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, in that, the two commandments are summed up in principle. So, uh, he very clearly showed that his love had to do with the commandments. And we spent quite a little time on showing that you cannot have agape, or that Greek word used as the love that God has, apart from his law. It is an impossibility because they are interchangeable. Law sounds a lot more menacing than love. But love is defined by law. Uh, if you don't have a definition of love, how do you know what it is? And if you do love as God loves, you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself... And not only that, you will do nothing to your neighbor that you would not want done to you. So he puts it in a very simple principle there that should come alive for us. Don't do anything to anybody that you would not want done to you. Now, how simple can you get? And that includes anybody, not just your friends, not just those whom you love. So God's law, even though it sounds hard and menacing, is actually quite simple and quite positive. You know, it's real easy to talk negatively about someone else, but do you like it when someone talks negatively toward you? No. You like it when you can pass on things, but you don't like it when others pass on things about you. So, there you have a very simple 
example of how the love of God acts, how it works, and the degree to which we do or say things about others that we would not want said or done to us is a very easy way to show how much agape we have, how much of God's love is opposed to human reactions of liking those who like us or enjoying those who enjoy us. That's just human emotion. But God's love is defined in the Bible very clearly in how it acts and reacts. You react to all people the way you would want to be reacted to. Remember, God doesn't just love those that love him. He so loved the whole world that he sent Christ. And he wants to save the whole world. And for the most part, he's going to do it before his plan is finished. That's how much he cares. Look at the sin that has been committed over the years since Adam and Eve. Murder and hatred and all kinds of gross and horrible and immoral things that have occurred in the relationship between people, not even bringing God into the equation, horrible wars and various things that people have done to people. There was violence in the land before Noah's flood to the point that many, many people were being murdered. So people did not have God's love for all other people, did they? They cherished those that they were close to, but they didn't really care about anyone else. So if we have God's love, we should have love for all people that God has created. We don't have to love their sin. God doesn't love their sin. But he loves his children. No matter what they do, he still loves them. He still loves you and me, no matter what we have done in the past. He still loves us, and we see that even among humans to some degree. It doesn't matter how bad one of your kids might turn out, you hate that part about them, but you still love them because they're your child. So it's something akin to a father in heaven's love to his children here on the earth, uh, in that we tend to have that kind of emotion for our very own children. It's other people's kids, you know, that give us a problem. It's like dogs, I guess. You love your dog, and you pet your dog, and you feed your dog, and you, you don't mind being around your dog, and it can sit in your lap, but go somewhere else and have somebody else's dog sit in your lap, and it's a totally different matter, especially if they want to lick your face. And that's the way it is with people. But we have to come to have not just human emotion and filios for those we like, but we have to come to have God's care and concern for everyone. It's why God tells us not to look forward to, in a wrong way, the horrible things that are about to happen on this earth. Already are happening, but going to get much, much worse. 
because we should not take glee or pleasure in the suffering of others. But there are people who have an attitude of socket to them, God. I don't think probably there are those sitting in this audience, but there are people on earth like that. And some of them are going to become the leaders of the world quite soon and already are. Let's pick it up in chapter 3 of 1 John. Behold, what manner of love, what kind of love, how do you define this kind of love? What manner of love? So, he shows here that there are different types of love, perhaps, but also different levels of it, different depths of it. It can go very shallowly or very deeply into the minds and emotions of people. But God's love is so incredible. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. The world at large then and the world at large now does not know God. He says if you don't keep his commandments, you don't know him. We went over that last week and the week before, or the last time I spoke. Doesn't know God. The world out there does not know God, even though they use his name. And they don't even know which God they worship, Christ said. But... What manner of love it is that he calls us his sons. We're just human. We're born of man and woman. And yet God started the process and created us back in the Garden of Eden in his very own image. That was a special thing he did. He didn't have to do it. The angels are not in his image. Some of the angels have wings... Not all of them. They are not shaped just like God is. They are, in that sense, created beings. But he made us, man in particular, but woman very similar, exactly in his image. Now, he has to have more love for us then than he does for horses and cows and birds. They are not created in his image. They are created perhaps more in the image of the angels because the domestic animals at least become servants of man as the angels are servants of God. And there is a correlation there. But he made us just like him. I mean, your cat can have kittens, or your dog can have puppies, or your cow can calve. And it can be a sweet and wonderful thing, and you just love those little baby animals. But it's not like having your own baby. That is a step above. There's more to it than that. It's deeper from the very beginning, and gets deeper and deeper as time goes on. Even though... The child is going to let you down probably more than the puppies do ultimately. But the deep love is still going to be there after the puppies and kittens are gone. 
So what manner of love is this? That God would create us in His exact image and call us His sons. Now, He's not talking here. He's talking in spiritual terms here, essentially. We'll see that as we go on. A son of God by birth, through the creation of children that He bestowed upon Adam and Eve, is one level of sonship. When we are begotten of God's Spirit and are on our road toward becoming spiritual, eternal sons of God, that is a serious upgrade. But we start out, even as little children, as a image, or an image, and a beginning of a replication of what God is. So, once we become spiritual sons, and he says that right here at the end of the verse, the world knows us not because it knew him not. Now, when we were out in the world, the world knew us. We were just like them. We were people, and on that level, sons of God, but not spiritually speaking, we were not. Now, once we make that break from the world and its society or cosmos and the way it operates and begin to truly try to walk in the Spirit, we begin to separate from the world. We begin to think more like God and less like them. And the more we grow in that, the less we are going to be like the people around us. And pretty soon they're going to say, those people are weird. Those people are odd. They don't think like I think. And a separation occurs. We don't think in the same way or on the same level they do anymore. So we become strangers to them. Now, we're still human, and we're still Bill or Joe or Andy or Ann or whatever our name might be. But we're different. And they recognize the difference. When you don't respond in the same way to the things they say and their jokes and their way and manner of life, they notice it. They see a different spirit, a different attitude. So the world knows us not because it knew Him not. See, if they knew God and understood Him and His way of thinking, then they would understand us and our way of thinking, wouldn't they? But since they don't have a clue about God, then they don't have a clue about us. Now, I think it should become very obvious that God is the Creator, and He holds the keys to eternal life, and we had better be more like Him than we are like these people around us. We have to work on that, because by nature we want to be like those around us. They do the easy thing, the self-gratifying thing, the pleasurable thing to them, whereas we walk a hard and ruddy road that is steep and uphill, narrow is the way, and straight or difficult is the gate to God's kingdom. And yet, basically, all of religion, or at least Christendom, says that it's an easy path. It's so easy. All you have to do is accept Jesus, and you're saved, born again, and you're going to heaven when you die. 
It's just that simple. No rules, no laws, no regulations. You're saved by grace, and once you accept Jesus, you're under grace, and you stay under grace and can't fall from it. That's their mainline teaching. How easy can it get? Why did Christ say it's straight, difficult, and narrow, ruddy, rugged, uphill? Because it is, in actuality, when you understand what it takes. So they don't know God, and therefore they don't know us, and we become estranged. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. So, spiritually speaking, we've entered into, as we'll see a little later on, a conception You either are pregnant or you are not pregnant. There is no in-between. You are either begotten to be born into God's kingdom or you are not. And when Christ returns, if you have not been begotten and grown to spiritual maturity, you will not be born into his kingdom. There are no two ways about it. We'll see that John talks about begettal here in a little bit. Now, we know that Christ has said that no man can see him as he is, because in his glory we would be blinded. We can't even look at the sun. And he shines like the sun in its full glory. Revelation 1, I think it is. So we cannot look upon the Father and the Son in their glory and live. We would die. But it says we shall be like him when he appears, and we will see him as he is, in his glory. He will return in glory, and most of the earth will will hide their eyes and run for the caves and places to hide from Christ in his glory, coming as the sun in its full brightness. But those who have been begotten of God and are prepared to be born into his kingdom will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, into spirit and become truly the sons of God in every way. 100% sons of God. Just as a child being gestated in the mother's womb is not born, it is maybe yours, but you can't see it yet. You can feel it thump and bump around, perhaps, but you don't know you you don't know that child yet, really, until it's born, and it's not fully formed until the time of birth. Then it is born, and you can see its fingers and toes and count them and check the plumbing and see what the face looks like and all those things that we like to do with a newborn child. It's suddenly quite different than it was poked way out here and could not be actually seen, heard, felt, touched, and so on. What a tremendous transformation that is. We have a girl here on this property who's going to have a child or pop pretty soon. And what a difference it's going to be from looking out and seeing that child pushing her tummy out and what it will be to hold it in her arms. 
Now, God uses that analogy to help us in part see the transformation from being a human being created in the image of God to becoming God. To being able to be like Him, just like Him, so that we can see Him as He is. And that is blasphemy to the ears of most Christians. To the Catholics, a beatific vision where they can kind of see God is to them the ultimate. And the more your relatives pay penance down here on the earth, I forget the term now, uh, for you after you die, the clearer your vision of God gets. So you are in this cloudy haze in Catholic heaven or purgatory in between. And as your relatives pay, you get a clearer vision. The clouds begin to part a little bit. And how much is done here on this earth for you when you're in that state will depend on whether it ever gets really clear or stays pretty murky. What a weird way to be throughout eternity. With Protestants, you don't have purgatory, that in in between, but you have either straight heaven or straight hell, it seems, at least for most of them. And even if you go to heaven, you're more like an angel. You're not God. But the Bible makes it very clear that we will be like him, we'll see him as he is, right here. So we are already, once begotten, considered sons of God spiritually, but not in entirety, not having been born into his kingdom. When we're born in, we'll be like him. What does it mean, be like him? Be just like him. We won't be like an angel. We won't be like a human. We'll be like Christ. Kind begets kind. Birds beget birds. God begets God. We are to become God. Didn't it say in the Psalms, ye are gods, but it does not yet appear what you shall be? We're not there yet, but we're begotten to become that. And every man, verse 3, that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Now, through the blood of Christ and forgiveness of sin, we become pure. Holiness and purity is a lack of sin or a lack of infractions against love or against the commandments. They're the same. So he makes us pure by removing our infractions or our sins or our breaking of the commandments. And then we continue to purify ourselves because just removing sin at baptism of the past does not prevent us from sinning in the future. And it is not too long after you're baptized that you will sin again. In thought, in deed, or even thinking of someone else lesser than you think of yourself. Or thinking about someone in a way that you would not want to be thought of. That's one of the simpler analogies to use. 
doesn't take long. So, you have to continue to purify your thoughts. To not let those carnal, human, selfish thoughts encroach upon your mind and emotions. Now that is a challenge. That is a 24-hour-a-day difficulty. Well, you might subtract the amount you sleep. I'm not sure of that always, because sometimes even in your dreams you can think ill of people. So it is a human characteristic to love people less than you love yourself. That's why you need the love of God. Call it agape if you want to make that Greek difference, but that isn't really, it doesn't really define it in the way that the simple analogy of love someone as much as you love yourself does, or doing something or thinking something about them that you would not want thought about yourself. I don't know how to put it any more simply than that. So Christ made it quite simple. In definition, he did not make it simple in living it or acting it. We do not have the love of God. Our love stops at the borders of whom we like. His love has to go beyond that to include everyone. So, we are to think in those terms for the ones here, but we are also to think that of everyone else on earth because he loved everyone on earth enough to send his son to die for everyone. Now, the degree that we have the love of God can be expressed or defined in how much of that kind of love we actually have. And we are not love as God is love. Because he never would do anything to anyone else that he would not will be willing to have done to himself in their circumstance. Therefore, we have to con continue to purify our thoughts, purify our actions, because none of us stays pure. So he goes on in verse 4. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Now there is a one verse or half a verse definition of sin. Sin is the breaking or transgressing of the law of God. Now, there are many churches that, pre that preach against sin. A lot of sermons about you should not have sinned. But they never get around to defining what sin is. They don't read 1 John 3, 4. Or if they do, they minimize it and spiritualize it away because they've already stated that the law is done away. So, if the law is done away, then sin is done away, is it not? Because if you don't break the law, you don't break sin. And if there is no law, there is no sin. If there is no law, 
We can kill each other with no penalty. We can steal from each other with no penalty. We can break any of the ten with no penalty. That could not be. So 1 John 3, 4 is a very, very important verse to have in your memory bank. It defines sin. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So what did his sacrifice do? His death removed our breaking of the law, which is what sin is. Now, why did he need to die if there's no sin? If the law is done away with, his death was an exercise in futility. Why not just say that the law is done away with, you don't have to worry about it. There's no sin. There's no law. So I don't need to die for you. Now, he was desperate just before his death. If it's possible, remove this cup from me. He knew it was not possible. But his emotion was, I don't want to go through what I'm about to go through. He knew Psalm 22 and 23. He knew Isaiah 53. He knew all those scriptures about what he would go through and have the skin ripped off his body so he could look down and see his bones and a crown of thorns and all the things that were done to him for no purpose if the law is done away. A useless sacrifice. He was manifested on this earth and died on this earth then to take away our sins and he never broke the law. In fact, he supported it and told the young rich man, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Do not break them. I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to live it, to fulfill it, and also to raise it to a higher level so that it affected not only your deeds, but your thinking. <coughs> so if anything, the law is more all-encompassing and stronger now than it was before Christ came. It was there on a physical level in the Old Testament. Now it is on a spiritual level. You not only cannot kill your brother, you cannot hate your brother. John will get to that here in a little bit. It's even harder to keep now than it was then. But we have the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to help us control our thoughts. Christ never sinned. He never did anything to anyone on this earth that he would not be willing to have done to himself. And look at all the things that were done to him in spite of his perfect life.
Verse 6, Whosoever abides in him sins not. Whosoever sins has not seen him, neither known him. So if you break the law of God, sin, he says here, you do not know God. Therefore, the law is still very, very much in effect and is the key and pivotal situation that defines whether you know God or not. This is quite different than the thinking we had as Protestants. Their belief does not match what John says. I care more what God says than what that Methodist preacher said when I was seven, eight years old. Whosoever abides in him sins not. Whosoever sins has not seen him, neither knows him. Verse 7. Little children. That could be in terms of understanding. Let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So, that's a paraphrase really of not the hearers, but the doers shall be justified. Hearing doesn't do a thing for you unless you do something about it. So don't be deceived because you have an air of religious approach in your life. You can act very sanctimonious, very kind, and be a nice person, and yet believe the law is done away and you can think whatever you wish to think. In that case, you do not have the love of God, nor do you have righteousness. And this is in the context of sin. <clears throat> now, verse 8. He that commits sin is of the devil. That puts it pretty clearly, doesn't it? If you break the law of God, you are of the devil. Now, what Protestant can argue with that? Well, he'll run right back to Galatians and try to prove there that you are totally under grace and you don't have to keep the law, even though Paul makes some very strong statements about the law himself. They can't handle 1 John. And he understood the love of God better than any of the apostles did. For the devil sins from the beginning. What did he do? He put himself ahead of God, ahead of the angels, ahead of Adam and Eve. He looked down upon God. He lied, he cheated, he stole, he broke the commandments. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, when it says he that commits sin is of the devil, does that mean if you sin once, you're of your father the devil, as Christ told the Pharisees they were? No. That's number uh, 4160 in the Greek. And the word means continues or abides in. So not just one committal of sin, because any of us can sin, and John 
does say that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So it's not a matter of through weakness or temptation or negligence or whatever that we might think a wrong thought or do a wrong thing that breaks the commandment of love. But if we live in that, continue in that, practice that as a way of living or abide in it, <clears throat> he that abides in or continues in sin is of the devil. Now, we've all sinned, no doubt about it, but we don't have to practice sin, live in sin, continue in sin. And that's why he tells us above to keep purifying ourselves. Because our normal human thoughts are deceptive, they're desperately wicked, they put self first, and they do to people all kinds of things that we would not want done to ourselves. It's that simple. And if you think you don't do that, then you need a very, very deep self-assessment session. Okay, let's go on. Uh, end of verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So the works of the devil are contrary to the law or the love of God. Did Satan show God's love when he rebelled and began to destroy parts of heaven and toss planets about and have a war with God? I don't think so. But he is the present prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this earth right now. God doesn't rule the earth. Do we realize that? Jesus Christ does not rule the earth. The devil does. He is the prince of the power of the air. And it says in very plain scripture, he rules the earth. Now Christ has qualified to replace him, but he hasn't come and done it yet. That's why we see what we see on earth today. The earth, the societies are following the ways of Satan. Its leaders are, its followers are. And therefore, we have crime and violence and every manner of evil doing that you can imagine on the face of the earth. Because Satan rules the earth. We have confusion, frustration, anger, famine, pestilence, war. Those are not the works of God. Those are the works of the devil who influences men. So, he came and was manifested here that he might destroy the works of the devil. How does he do it? He began very, very small with a little flock. Twelve disciples, 120 followers, twelve who become, became apostles, one replaced. He expanded it at Pentecost and began to call a few thousand as opposed to millions. And he said, Fear not, little flock, that the church of God would be very small throughout the reign of Satan on this earth until Christ returns. So he was manifested to begin to develop a few people who would indeed follow his way instead of the way of Satan and the society around them. 
And it has always remained small because not very many people are willing to make the sacrifices and the commitment with the necessary knowledge to become like God is and think like He thinks. Very few. And not until Christ returns, chains up the devil, and takes charge and rules over the earth for a thousand years, will we have peace and prosperity everywhere. Now why does Christ say, when he gives the sample prayer to follow the format of there in Matthew. As soon as you glorify God's name, the first thing you pray, the foremost thing on your mind should be, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God did not tolerate Satan in heaven. He kicked him back to the earth. To rule it. Now he has made one exception to that. He allows Satan still to this day to come before his throne as the ruler of the earth and accuse God about us. That is the only reason he is allowed there is to make those accusations. He is the chief accuser of the brethren. And if we accuse the brethren, we are like Satan. You know what? That's why God hates gossip, negativity, and talking down about people so badly. The only lack of peace, tranquility, and beauty in God's kingdom in heaven today is the presence of Satan accusing you and me. That is the only fly in the ointment of perfect peace at God's throne. Now we need to do God a favor and purify ourselves so that we can be pure as he is pure and then... Satan can't make as much noise and confusion at the throne of God as he makes today. He doesn't need to accuse the world. It's sold in sin. The main ones he accuses are those who are trying to keep God's laws and follow his ways and be like him. They're the only ones that concern him. The rest he has in his pocket. It is only those of us who swim against the world and Satan's way that he hates. And that is manifest in Revelation 12 when, Christ, when he is cast down for the last time here at the end of the age. He will not go after the Methodists and the Baptists and the Mormons and the Catholics and the Buddhists and the Shintoists and the Hindus. He will come after those who know God, keep his commandments by John's definition, and follow his ways. The true church of God are the ones he will come after. Solely. And when they are taken to a place of refuge, Zion, 
He will then turn and in his anger try to destroy all humankind. He will be so frustrated, so enraged, that he tried to wipe out the church and it fled to a place that God will keep us in refuge until Christ returns. And when Christ comes, he will finish destroying the works of the devil in terms of our lives by changing us into spirit beings to be like him. We are begotten of him now. And if we are begotten of him, what are we going to be born as? Sheep? Goats? Turkey buzzards? No, we'll be born of God. Because we're begotten of God. Let's see that in verse 9. It says, Whoever, whosoever is born of God. Now, this was translated by Protestants back in 1611, who believed then that you're done already born again. I understand the grammar there. But we're not born again. If you look it up, that word in the Greek is ganao, G-E-N-N-A-O. And it means to beget or to conceive. There is no hint in the Greek that it means born. So we are not born of God. We are conceived, begotten of God. Now, John explained that again clear back in John 3.16. Where he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Are you spirit? Try the old hat pin test. I had a ladder fall out from under me this week. Made a six point landing. It was very gracious, I'm sure, if anyone had seen. And I hurt all over worse than anywhere else, except my head. It's the only thing I think that I didn't hit. Boy, I wasn't spirit. I was quivering flesh, hurting and aching in great pain for some time while I assessed how many things weren't broken. None, fortunately, thankfully. I'm human all the way through to the bone. And some of my bones still hurt. Hard to sit down. We are human not spirit. We are not born of the spirit. We are merely begotten of it. And that's what baptism is. You go under the water, it symbolizes a watery grave in which the old man symbolically dies. You come out of the water, the old man washed away. And you receive the begettle of God's Spirit through the laying on of hands. If you are not baptized knowing what it means and what you were doing and why you were doing it, and don't have the laying on of hands by people who have God's Spirit, you are not begotten of the Spirit. And only those who have been duly appointed and authorized can lay hands on them. Where do we get this idea that comes up even sometimes in disaffected Church of God members that anybody can anoint 
anybody can baptize, anybody can do any of those ceremonies, when the Bible clearly says, if you're sick, you call the elders of the church, not some lay member, to lay hands on you. And Paul and others authorized Timothy and others, Titus, to ordain ministers so that they might perform those ceremonies that is reserved for them. And according to Scripture, it is highly presumptuous for anyone to do things that they have not been ordained to do. And, in God's definition, presumptuousness is the same thing as witchcraft. Now, where do people get those ideas? And they floated around, in my experience, for at least 50 years that I've known about. So it's nothing new, but it's contrary to Scripture. So you have to be begotten of God under the, pro the proper circumstances, or it means nothing. Infant baptism, or sprinkling by the Catholics, or sprinkling by any church does not represent baptism. It's a watery grave. The symbolism is being covered over, symbolically dying, sprinkling a little water on your head. Even if it's been blessed and becomes holy, is not a symbolism of death. I don't want my sins sprinkled. I don't want a little sprinkling of blood from Christ's body. I want His blood to run down and all over me. All His blood drained out for our sins. It took all of it. Now let's notice. Whosoever is begotten of God, verse 9, does not live in or continue in sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot live in sin because he is begotten of God. So once that seed of begettal is placed in us after baptism at the laying on of hands, it is the same symbolism as a woman conceiving of her husband. Now, there's one of the important reasons why sexual immorality is wrong. is because if you are not legally conceived by your own husband, you are conceived by someone other than legality. If we are conceived of anything but the Father and the Son's Spirit from heaven then we are conceived illegally, and we are bastards and not sons. Is that clear? We cannot be conceived in sin of our father the devil as the Pharisees were. We have to be conceived through legal and proper channels. That is why, or one of the reasons why, it is so important to maintain morality and all children be conceived in wedlock within the law of God. Now, if anything other than that 
occurs, it is sin. It is illegal and improper breeding, whether it's test tube babies or sperm banks or uh, fornication or whatever it might be. It's illegal. And God uses that symbolism among us as human beings as a very important symbolism of spirituality and being conceived of a legal father. Now, those things happen in human life. It does not mean they cannot be repented of. It does not mean we can't change and do things right from there on and later be conceived of God's Spirit because most of us, all of us, at one time or another, were living as begotten children of the devil, living in sin and lies. So I single out that one thing because it is a very important part of the symbolism of being properly impregnated so that we can become truly the children of God and the Son of God when Christ returns. But any sin can be forgiven. So it's not an unpardonable sin, but it does rest and misuse the true symbolism that God has placed between man and woman as a representation of Christ and his bride-to-be. So everything needs to be on the up and up. And anything less than that in any form is ungodly and has to be repented of. It's that simple like any other sin. But the symbolism here is very important. So you can't continue in sin if you're begotten of God, verse 9. You have to change direction. You have to begin to keep his law and have his love, which means expressing that law toward him and toward mankind. And loving others as you love yourself. Verse 10, And this the children of God are manifest. So that's how you know the children of God. If they don't continue in sin, they turn their life around and go a different direction and are conceived of the Spirit of God. They then become, begin to become strangers to the world around them. They don't act or think like the world around them because God's seed remains in them. Now what is seed? It is that whereby we are conceived. And his spirit, then, in the analogy, is the seed of begettal. You do not call a seed anything but a seed until a plant begins to grow and finally produces fruit. So God's spirit begins us in us as a tiny seed planted with a laying on of hands after proper baptism with proper understanding. And then the Spirit of God is to grow with us, in us, and he represents us as plants or vines or a body. It's to grow in us to a point of maturity <coughs> so that we can be born and survive forever in the kingdom of God. Beautiful analogy. So, 
it's the seed of God, the Spirit of God that dwells in us that causes our thinking to change, and we are manifest. The children of the devil are the seed of the devil. Conceived in this world, its way of thinking, its society, its culture, its very nature. By nature, Jeremiah 17, 9, the human mind is deceitful and desperately, not partially, but desperately wicked. Who can know it? Those are God's words, not mine. By nature, unless we are taught differently, we will be selfish to the core. And if we are not instructed from babyhood by our parents very carefully, we grow up what? Spoiled, selfish, bratty, self-centered, egomaniacs, vain, proud, and basically obnoxious. It is only by careful nurturing by father and mother that a human being turns out anything but a mass murderer. Selfish to the core. Do we realize that all of us, by nature, have a dark side? If you ignore that in yourself, you're self-deceived. That dark side is somewhere within all of us. Now, it may have been papered over. It may have been worked on by our parents and others so that we have learned to treat each other with a certain amount of decency and respect. But given a chance, it will be manifest very quickly. How long do you think it will take for a civilized society such as we purport to have today in America? How long do you think that will last when there's no gas at the pump, no electricity, and no food at the store. God says those conditions are going to happen very shortly now. And they will get so bad that women will eat the child that comes from between their legs. That's God's exact way of putting it. It will devolve into that so very quickly. And everyone will be eyeing each other to see if I can kill him or her, or he can kill him or me, and who's going to eat tonight and who is going to be eaten. Those are the prophecies for America that will be happening very soon. Not very pleasant to talk about. Maybe we'd just soon choose to ignore it. That won't change things. It's going to happen anyway, right here in our very own nation. It happened in World War II and other places. It happened in the Civil War in this nation. It's going to happen again and much worse. That is what human nature, aided and abetted by Satan the devil will produce under extreme conditions. And no one without the Spirit of God will be able to resist. So there will be a great manifestation between the children of God and the children of Satan.
Last half of verse 10. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God. Righteousness is defined as keeping the law. And you're not of God unless you keep the law. Neither he that loves not his brother. If we have hatred in our hearts, Christ said, we're murderers. Sermon on the Mount, very first sermon he gave. But an attitude of hatred is the same as the attitude of murder. Hatred can be a very grim and very deep emotion, or it can be hatefulness, a milder sounding word. It could also be, be defined, if you got out Roger, Roger's thesaurus and saw all the synonyms for hate, it could mean negativity, it could be looking down upon, it could be speaking against, it could have a plethora of different definitions that don't sound nearly so bad. It's just a matter of degree, is what it is. Remember, the standard is, love your brother as yourself... Spoken differently, no less than yourself. So, any feeling or love that is below your love for yourself is a degree of hate. A degree of breaking the law. And the further that disassociation or condemnation or lack of care for, the deeper that goes, the less the love of God you have, and the more hatred for your brother you have. Anything less, anything a smidgen below loving your brother as much as you love yourself is a road to Satan. It is a curve headed for Satan's way. And I would believe that all of us are several marks below loving our neighbor, our brother, as ourselves. So hatred is by degree. Outright murder is a pretty low level of hatred, or a pretty high level, I guess, of hatred. Despising our brother is less than physical murder, but it is still the spirit and the attitude of murder. What is dead? Dead is in the ground. Dead is covered up. Dead is nothingness. Human beings, once dead, know nothing. They're not in heaven or hell or purgatory or limbus and phantom or anywhere else conscious. They are not reincarnated as bugs, bees, or George Washington. They're dead. They know nothing. And any negativity we have toward the sons of God, be they human beings on the earth whom God so loved that He sent His only begotten Son, or whether they are brothers in the church. 
Anything we think, say, or do that is less than what we would want to think, said, or done to us is a degree of hatred, a lack of agape or the love of God. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And it was the primary message of Christ himself when he was on this earth. He boiled down the commandments to two simple principles. Love God more than anything and love your neighbor as much as you do yourself. It's that simple. A Protestant would not argue with that. You know what? You're supposed to love God and love your neighbor. I don't have any problem with that. But if you list all ten instead of just those two principles, suddenly it's done away with. How'd that get it done away with just because you list it as ten actual instructions instead of two principles that are the same. The law of God is very much in effect. So we're to love one another, not as Cain, verse 12, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. So he had judged that he was better than his brother. And in fact, the more he thought about it, he was so much more important than his brother that his brother didn't amount to anything. And if his brother isn't anything and then has become nothing in your mind, well, might as well kill him. He's nothing anyway. I am so much better than he. My thoughts are more important than his. My sacrifice is better than his. I'm just better than he is. <coughs> I don't esteem him higher than myself, as Paul said. But we should do. So in principle, you might as well just go ahead and kill him. Not in actuality, because you're supposed to repent of the hatred or the animosity or the attitude, or the grudge, or whatever it is you hold that is less than what you would want done to yourself. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know, now this is a very interesting statement, we know that we have passed from the path of death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. So we are on the slippery slope to the lake of fire if we love our brother less than we love ourselves. That's pretty condemning of us, is it not? Do we need purified more or do we not? Can we, if we harbor continuing Hatred, grudges, animosity toward a brother or anyone be considered a Christian? No. John made it very clear that one sin is one sin and can be forgiven upon repentance. But continuing in sin, abiding in sin, allowing a wrong attitude to continue 
defines you as a child of Satan, not a child of God. Is John making something clear or not? Agape is far above what we can spit out or accomplish as human beings. Far beyond. His standard is to love everybody as much as you love yourself. And want them to be in God's kingdom living peacefully and happily together throughout all eternity. That is the supreme manifestation of the love of God, is that we have that same attitude toward every human being that he has. And anything less than that shows a deficiency in the love of God. It's a matter of degrees. We are all somewhat deficient. Maybe we're not as deficient as Cain was, or as Judas was, but we're deficient to one degree or another. Just because you're a little low in copper doesn't mean you're dead. It means you have a deficiency and you need to take some copper. I just picked a number. So we might be on the path and be purified in the blood of Christ, but we have to continue to purify and overcome our deficiencies to the standard of God. So he says, don't marvel if the world hates you. If we have the love of God of the brethren, then we are the children of God. Our begettal is taking hold. We are growing toward thinking more like God, preparing to be born into the kingdom of God when Christ returns. But if we are not willing to love our brother as much as we love ourselves, then we are headed toward death, you see. Because God will not tolerate less than love throughout eternity. And if you don't truly love your brother and come anything short of that, you have work to do. And God is at some point going to define in his mind you. He ponders our hearts. He ponders our thoughts. And at some point, he's going to make a decision. Does this one have enough of my love for everybody and his brothers in particular in the church to be able to live in peace and harmony with them throughout all eternity as the bride of Christ? Or does he not? And if we are deficient enough, we will go into the lake of fire. Just as if you are deficient enough in salt or a mineral or a vitamin, you will die physically. If we are deficient enough in the love of God, we will not be in the kingdom of God. Now that shouldn't be discouraging, it should be fearful. It should point us in the right direction to begin to work on ourselves to not think or say anything about anybody that we would not want to be said or done to us. That is the golden rule. And all the gold and silver is God's. And he who has the gold is the one who rules. 
Now that's an axiom used among men, but in truth, God owns it all and he is the one who's going to rule. And we need to be tried and refined as gold and silver. And we have to refine ourselves through the word of God and prayer and study and meditation and action, not hearers but doers. And if we refine ourselves enough, we will not have to go into the great refinery known as the great tribulation that the world is going to go into in a few years. It's up to us to respond now to God and to change our conduct and our thinking to reflect God's love, not just human love. And John lays it out here. He uses our interaction with our brothers in the church first and in the rest of the world in terms of God's love and our attitude toward them. And anything less than the gold standard needs work. So, have a nice work week. <laughs>